0: As polarization continues to cripple American politics, we need better solutions to be able to have conversations with each other again, to be able to constructively work out solutions that will help the entire country. Today I'm joined by a special guest who has already written a book about how America can work towards a more civil and more united nation let's begin patriotism faith national unity education fiscal responsibility civility the values that define america fascinating stories and talks from america-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom opportunity and justice welcome to the friends and fellow citizens podcast Hello and welcome to another episode of Friends of Fellow Citizens. I'm your host Sherman Tylowski here with another guest episode and I'm featured uh, today with our special guest, Mr. Ed Wynn. For more than three decades, Ed Wynn has helped governments and companies discover and implement solutions to complex, often divisive issues. He's worked in all branches and levels of government and with both Republicans and Democrats. Of Truman Presidential Scholar, Ed has a political science degree, summa cum laude, from the University of Illinois, and a law degree, magna cum laude, from Georgetown. And most importantly, Ed's not a political insider, and he's willing to call out any side on its BS. Isn't that something that we should all be striving to do? He is the author of a new book called We the People, Restoring Civility, Sanity, and Unifying Solutions, I bought the book, and I've read through it, and I can tell you it is really quite an amazing book if people want to know firsthand uh, what both sides are doing that are unfortunately contributing to this lack of civility, which is the central topic for today's episode. So Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Sherman, thank you so much, and I'm very pleased to be part of the show, and thank you for having me on.
0: You're very welcome. And I want to just first of all recognize the fact that uh, we are recording at this time before the November 3rd, 2020 election, which I think is important to note because the topics we're covering are covering not just about election cycle. We're talking about election cycles across years, decades, and generations. And I think it's worthy to note that, and given the Uh, topics that we're covering. Uh, I'm really excited to build upon these more. And throughout the episode, let me just um, adjust my microphone here. As I've stated, we want to build on these episodes time after time again, so that we can advance this conversation. So Ed, my first question to you is, why did you decide to write this book in the first place?
1: Sherman, I'm glad to. And the story of how I came about deciding to write this book is an interesting one. So, back in the prior presidential election cycle in 2016, I cycled across the U.S. from off the coast of Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine. And during that trip, uh, which was just amazing, and I rode with 12 other just fantastic writers, I was able to observe the extreme political divisiveness, particularly in the battleground states, uh, both those that were battleground states in 2016 and those that will be uh, battleground states in the current upcoming election. And what I saw was troubling as an American, which is that People were very mean spirited in expressing their political viewpoints. They were very divisive in terms of selecting a candidate because they didn't like the other one and then ascribing to that other candidate feelings of hatred, things that were just really inappropriate in a political discussion or debate. And so I thought about the book. Uh, I thought about what would what was causing that to happen. Uh, and after the riot and in these intervening years, have done some research about what causes that divisiveness in political discourse and how we can improve it. And one of the things that became apparent as well is that people did not have, we did not have a good understanding of basic civics. We were taught a lot of data and facts and figures in civics, but we were taught very few of the so what in addition to being not taught how to have a civil political discourse. So that's the idea for the book. And then I recently retired. And because you, it's difficult in the current very divisive environment to write a book on a topic like this, I waited uh, to finish and complete the book and to have it published until after I retired so it wouldn't uh, have any blowback on uh, the company that I led
0: wow, that must have been some kind of trip. Hopefully there weren't too many inclines you had to ride up because I know from personal experience that that can be especially challenging. But the most important part I want to ask now is about this civics knowledge because I think it's a real problem when it comes to inspiring people. We are using the probably the worst way to persuade people to join the democratic process – I'll use the citizenship test as an example. I think there's some kind of database or some kind of list of questions that they would ask and respondents would have to answer in the same way or in an approximately similar way, but to what end? I mean, I thought the whole purpose of democracy was to show that people can have a voice and understand that these issues are complex and that they require deliberation. But it seems like we have gone into a culture where people need to just memorize facts like they did back in school, but the application part is really missing. So expand on the civics aspect a little bit here because I really want to let the audience know that this really is a fundamental problem with the way we persuade people.
1: Yeah, I think the most important thing is, and I think you're exactly right, Sherman, is the most important thing that we need to do is to make it relevant. I think people are much more of all ages. Uh, students, uh, middle-aged people, older people are much more willing to get engaged on a topic if it's relevant to them. And I think we haven't made it all that relevant. Like you said, it's a lot of facts and figures. And maybe that's because it's safe, because if you start to get into the so what, that can touch on political things. And people feel that if they get there, they may be... Uh, criticized and so they don't need that. So we'll just teach the facts and figures. And in fact, that thesis is supported by some research that others have done and that I cite in the book. So I think we really need to get to what is it and how is this relevant to me? What do I need to know to be able to exercise my rights and duties as a citizen? And what are those rights and duties anyway? And so I think that's where the focus really needs to be because we can all look up the data and the information, uh, particularly now in the information age where we have a mini computer with us at all times where we can get access to that information. But what we really need is what does that mean to me and how does that help me better exercise my duties and rights as a citizen?
0: You're exactly right. And it gets back to that central point about focusing on the individual. When I say individual, I don't mean individualism, which is something that you actually touch upon in your book about uh, one of the sources of this polarization. But it's more about you know, f- focusing the civics on uh, the person. Because as you said, people really want to be engaged. People want to be part of the process. However, I'm seeing that there's people who are doing it the wrong ways. Or maybe it's that they weren't even given the tool set to engage in the process in the first place. And I think this goes now to my next question, which I think is something that a lot of people really want to know. And that is really the overview and maybe a little bit the origins of this polarization in America. I mean, when I w- when I was growing up, you know I, I of course I wasn't engaged in politics when I was a young kid and I think it's understandable I personally don't think that young kids should engage in politics I think it, it does require some kind of of education first and maturity to some degree uh, just be given the kind of nature and the consequences of the world of politics um, but I, I think the o- overview is just as important if not more important in terms of understanding the root causes and uh, finding ways to bridge these, incredibly deep divides. So Ed, um, could you tell us a bit about the overview of the current state of polarization and just a little bit about your thoughts of how we got to this deeply, deeply divided America?
1: Absolutely. So I think one of the ways going back to the civics education, in addition, not understanding our rights and responsibilities as a citizen, is we didn't even learn how to have a discussion about political topics. And so I think that's missing. And because we didn't know how to have that discussion, uh, we can't be very, we didn't have the basis or the background to have those civil discussions that we need to have to solve the many pressing problems that we have. But I think you mentioned kind of the cause. And I talk about the six causes of lack of civility in political discourse in the book. But the first one is really is individualism. And that's the idea that I get to choose my set of facts. If I don't believe that it's true, then it's not. And that's really a dangerous place to start. And so I do think that starting with a common set of facts and getting the facts is a really important way to enable a civil discussion. Then you go to supremacy, which is my facts and my beliefs are better than yours. And that's very dangerous, too. And we see that so much right now. And we've seen that really start to happen, I think, in the past decade and particularly intensely in the last five to seven years. And then that leads to polarization, which you described as well, which is, okay. I get to decide my own facts and. I, my, whatever I believe, choose to believe is, uh, supreme. It's, it's, you know, it's my way or the highway. And then I divide up. So either you're with me. You're my group that's with me that believes the same thing or you're not. And if you're not, you're the epitome of evil. And that's really where we got here. It's through that progression of thinking, not being taught a framework that we could use to have more civil discussions.
0: Is this lack of understanding or poor understanding of how we should have political discussions mainly because of our schools, or do you think there's more at play here?
1: Well, that's a good question, Sherman, and I think it is some of both. So let me start with the education aspect, which is I don't think that we've really been taught this in civics as I talked about before, but then it's become a little bit in institutionalized, I believe, as well, combined with some other cultural things that went in. So one example of that is the phenomenon that occurred about not having different forms of speech on college campuses. College campuses are designed to be the place of learning and bringing different viewpoints respectfully into the mix so that people can think about things and come up with better solutions. What happened for a number of cultural reasons, uh, including the fact that we didn't teach how to have a discussion like that in a civil manner to get different viewpoints in the mix— was that college campuses, there became this trend where expressing viewpoints you don't like were deemed to be unsafe and therefore were not to be tolerated. And that's the opposite of all these colleges' missions, which is just so surprising. Now, that doesn't mean, and I want to be clear, that we should have conversations that are violent, that threaten violence, that are inappropriate but having civil discussions of different viewpoints is really crucial so i think that's there another institutional thing that happened and i'm not quite sure there's a point in time where we can say it happened then i think we can say it happened you know things happened the right way at a prior time and then now they're not happening so good is so so well is that we had more bipartisanship and bros party solutions where we focus more on what is the best for our country rather than what's best for my party. And I think when you had people like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, who probably exemplified that very well, we've had some recent examples of that. John McCain would be a perfect example, but we've gotten to the point where we now polarize around parties in our political institutions. And I think that is uh, only making this trend worse. And it's really hurting those that do want to find those bipartisan solutions that are beneficial to us, uh, but maybe not the best for their respective party.
0: There's a story about Ronald Reagan reading the newspaper one day, and he reads about something that Tip O'Neill had said about it. It was something vile. I can't remember what exactly he said or what he called him. But then Reagan called up Speaker O'Neill, and he told him, hey, Tip, you know, we're good friends. We do a lot of things together. We spend a lot of time together. I read in the paper that you said something about me, or you called me this. And Tip replied, Mr. President, it's not six o'clock yet. You know, during the day, as we're battling through what we believe is best for the country, we are rivals. We are going to be able to see these kinds of things. But after 6 o'clock, we're friends. We have dinner together. We spend time with each other's families. And I think that story is really simple because it shows that, at, at least at the time, and in unfortunately fewer cases maybe during this day and age, people could separate politics from personalities and just basic friendships. So I just want to bring up that story. I think it's a remarkable story. And it shows that maybe what we're seeing on the media is not very reflective of how people in Congress get along. However but we are a long way from realizing that as a norm rather than just exception. So now I want to move now to the bit to the federal government because there's so many aspects of our federal system that need to be reworked. So Ed, what is your take on some of the big faults that we're seeing in our federal system?
1: Yeah. And I want to tie it into something you just mentioned in in the prior comment that I made. I think one of the things that we've done that's been very poor would be we've equated position with the person. Let me explain that. If we have different positions, I will not debate your position or attack your position. I'll do that. But more than that, I will attack you personally, everyone in your family, your pets, anyone who believes the same position. And that's how it's gotten so vile and nasty. The example that I recently uh, heard about and read about that was very troubling to me, and and despite what you may think about this whole COVID um, response situation, the fact that Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head scientist in infectious disease for our country, has to actually have a security detail for himself and his family because of the positions he takes on this issue is appalling to me. And I would say that for anyone else. I mean, we've had the more recent example of the uh, alleged kidnapping plot for Governor Whitmer in um, Michigan. And that's just, how did we get so over the top where just because I disagree with your position, you're worthy of death? I mean, we need to step back from this and say, wait a minute. If I disagree with your p- position, let me take on your position with facts and logic and persuasion. Go after that as hard as you'd like. But why do we have to go after the person and make them such a villain because we disagree with them? It's unacceptable.
0: I think you're right. And I, I just cannot believe that there are people who try to justify it, like try to justify violence, saying that you know there's some kind of – um, you know, some kind of conspiracy. I, there's been these uh, these conspiracy theories that have come about, especially during this pandemic, but it has gone on for a very long time. I'll, I no, I'll never forget that one conspiracy theory called Pizzagate, uh, which was oh, yes. really, really crazy. I mean, just the thought of that. I mean, look, I and mean, people obviously are going to stand against pedophilia. That's not the issue here. The issue is that an, an issue of importance Like combating sex trafficking, combating these things, which, of course, is a widely bipartisan thing that we should all work on, that has been twisted into a false narrative that people are playing off of, and that's just not healthy at all. And I'm really concerned that these narratives that are being twisted for political purposes or just for the sake of attention I think are really coming at a cost – for both parties to be able to work together. And that has to stop. There's there's a number of things that I would touch upon. One of the things I, I want to point out in terms of a major, major fall in a political system, especially on the congressional level, is that we have come to a point where when you look at the schedule for an average member of Congress, it goes something like this. I, I interned on the Hill last year, and this was kind of the gist I got, which is that On Monday afternoon, maybe Sunday's Monday morning, you have representatives fly in from their districts. Some, of course, traveling via subway uh, from Arlington. Uh, Some others are flying in from even from Alaska or from Hawaii. And you have people flying in, and then they spend a little bit of Monday maybe doing some kind of votes or something. They have Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. But after Thursday, though... That's really when now representatives are like, all right, I'm going back to my district. And so you only have about three days-ish to uh, to do work. And that's not even counted. The fact that every week there's, there's this partisan lunch that happens. You have like a Republican lunch and a Democrat luncheon, which I'm thinking like, this is part of the problem here, which is there are people spending so little time in D.C. They're not even meeting up with each other. They're not maybe... Maybe, there, of course, there are smaller interactions, right? I mean, we've seen instances where uh, a Democrat, Republican have admitted that, you know, they are friends, right? But we don't really see that on a much larger level. And people have to be held accountable for that. And I really am calling for the party leadership on both sides to find out more ways so that you don't have this strange schedule where people are not really even mingling with each other. And that's become a very big problem.
1: I would agree wholeheartedly with that, Sherman. And I do think there's some hope, rays of hope within that. So one group that I became aware of as part of the research for the book was the Problem Solvers Caucus, which are 50 equally divided Republican and Democratic members of Congress that get together and try to find common solutions to many issues. And that group um, sponsored by the organization No Labels, of which I'm a part, uh, really tries to get the two sides together and to find these solutions. And what has happened in many cases is that the extremes of the party run extreme candidates against these very moderate problem-solving representatives to discourage that. And I, I kept reflecting about that and thinking, why would that problem solving be discouraged. And the only thing I could come up with is going back to this concept of putting loyalty to party over loyalty to country. And that really is unfortunate. And it doesn't encourage people to try to get together and try to have these solutions. And I guess what I would say is, why is it just 50 of our congressmen and women that are part of problem solving. Shouldn't it be all of them? And I think just very basically, we need to focus less on our positions in these discussions and more on what is our common goal. I think, and this is something that I do talk about in the book, is starting with that common goal. What is the problem we're trying to achieve rather than going right away to our position? uh, That enables a more productive discussion in which things can be solved. And whether it's bringing together bipartisan groups of veterans or bipartisan groups of constituents, I think that really works. And as I discussed in the book, there's been a couple organizations that have done that brought together roughly 500 people and of different backgrounds and with different positions and started a discussion like that. And it's amazing, even in a weekend they can come to recognize and figure out that they have a lot more in common than they thought. And from that commonality of the human experience, come up with practical solutions that most everybody can agree on. That's where we need to be.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And I want to now add on Something real quick about local and state governments. It's not really about just about the actual role that they have, although obviously in our federal system, they do play an important role. And this is what I'm trying to get at, which is there's so much fixation on federal policies, you know, what the White House is doing, what Congress is doing. And I understand that, of course, that the federal government has a lot of influence, not only in the United States, but around the world. But I fear that there's not enough people paying attention to the local and state governments, which oftentimes have proportionally more influence on people's lives than the federal government does. So, Ed, what are the major obstacles that you find uh, are hampering people from participating in the political realms of local and state governments?
1: That's a great question. Let me start with the concept that you raised, which is under our Constitution, the federal government has limited powers and the rest of the powers that aren't given to the federal government are reserved to the states and to the people. And so really, and I make this point in the book, that most of the things that affect us greatly are really within the domains of our state and local government. So that's a place where we really should participate more, but we're not. And part of the reason for that is it doesn't get a lot of public attention. It doesn't get a lot of media attention. You know, most of the media attention right now is on these federal issues and on the federal politicians, where it really should be on the local and state government levels. And as I discuss in the book, I think this leads to some unfortunate situations on the state level in particular, but there are examples at the local level too. We have seen just some amazing and frequent examples of political corruption. That go unchecked because we are not, as citizens, paying attention to that and it goes under the radar. And it's almost become, it's almost come to the point that it's so frequent, it's almost expected. Now, maybe I'm a little bit jaundiced about that because I live in Illinois and we've had three recent governors in prison. But I do think that it's a trend across the country and the research and data back that up. And I think we need to think about how we can get involved and break through these log jams where the political parties have predominated. In particular, and I just completed some research on this and and wrote an op-ed about it, is the influence that state governments can really have on the election of the president. And we need to really understand what those laws are. So for example. In Texas, there's a state law that says if the uh, election of the electors, being part of the electoral college that selects the president, is disputed in Texas, the governor of Texas has exclusive jurisdiction to resolve those disputes. I doubt many Texans know that. I know I didn't know that until I researched it. I doubt many of the rest of us knew that either. But I think we'd say, is that the right solution to this? Is that where we should be? And I think we need to pay a little more attention to what's going on in our state governments and local governments. And and the fault shouldn't always be on us. It's a little harder to look for that information because it's not reported by the media and journalists as much as the information about our federal governments are. Now, there are some exceptions. One of the sources that I think has done a remarkably good job on this, in addition to covering uh, federal stories, is ProPublica. They've done a number of those studies highlighting these things that each of us need to know about our respective states. Uh, from Alaska. They've done some here in Illinois. They've done some really across the country. And I think we need to look for more sources like that to help us get information about our local governments and so that we can act on that and make decisions in our role as citizens of those states. And finally, I think particularly in local governments, there's an opportunity for citizens to get involved. And if we know how to get involved, if that's emphasized as part of our responsibilities uh, in uh, when we learn about that in civics, I think that could be important. There are a number of volunteer opportunities for things that really affect us in our local government that we should be more a part of. And I know many communities have difficulty getting people to volunteer for that, to run for local offices. Are, are those situations are reserved for a group of people that kind of take control of that. And we need to open it up a little bit more and make that more representative of the communities uh, that those uh, bodies govern.
0: What you said about that uh, Texas law, I did not know about that either. And uh, I, I can't begin to imagine how many people don't know about certain laws, which under closer examination, you thought that's not really what... I think democracy should be, you know, it's like a bit of a self-reflection exercise, I think. And when you were saying about uh, how people are, are or local or county level governments are struggling to get people to fill in positions, that reminds me a little bit about how when I fill a ballot in and there's all these propositions, there's all these proposals and these people running for school board and all that, I, even as someone who's really involved in politics, I really wish that I had done a better job keeping up with what's happening in my local and state governments. Because I do recognize that it is important. However, as you were saying, we often get distracted by what is happening in DC, even though there are so many things that affect us on the local and state level. And it's unfortunate when I and people have to refer to kind of like a bit of a cheat sheet, so to speak. You know, usually from a political party where they tell you like, oh, just vote for this person, vote for that person, vote no, vote yay on this. And I and, and as you're doing that, I think to myself that that's not. That's not the democracy I should be calling for. I can't just say we need a better democracy and have people get involved in civics while also using a cheat sheet for that. I just don't think those two line up. So I'm I'm really hoping that you know I do I want to do a better job, and I think overall we should do a better job And uh, just even doing some basic research and basic reading about what the proposition is or who is running for school board. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I think I've I've been surprised reading about a candidate. I thought, um, doesn't sound so interesting, but maybe upon further investigation, I found that this person might actually have some really good prospects. And this leads me now to another topic here. We were talking about attention, you know, attention to the federal government. And there's a lot of these sources of attention come from the mainstream media and social media. And this has really become a hot topic. I don't think this is going anywhere soon. I recently watched this documentary slash drama called The Social Dilemma. I highly encourage people to watch it. It's on Netflix and maybe some other platforms. And it's not all the views on tech. But one thing I really like about this documentary is that they were not blaming People in Google and Facebook and and other tech companies as all these like nefarious you know hackers you know in the in some dark room or something you know the kind of image that you were thinking about. Of course, the people they were thinking of maximizing profit and uh, doing things that maybe they thought were beneficial for the country. But there's going to be major major consequences to anything huge that comes in. You know, I think anything new that comes in we might be either are really excited about it, or we might just not even think about uh, what the consequences are. And some people might just only focus on the negative consequences. But I bring this up because this really, this issue on social media, mainstream media, really has to be solved. Like we can't, we can't obviously shut down media outlets. The government cannot shut down media outlets because that goes against the First Amendment. But at the same time, some might argue that the kind of language and the kind of divisiveness, divisiveness that we're seeing on social media and the mainstream media might actually be ruining the democratic process that the government is trying to protect. So Ed, my question to you is, what are the big issues that we have to deal with when it comes to mainstream media outlets, social media, and this practice, unfortunate practice that is keeping people so close-minded at a time when we should be even more open-minded?
1: Absolutely. And I do talk about this in the book as well. And I think it revolves around two things. One, what are these social media companies? I think we need to get a grip on, are they publishers or what are they? And the second one is anonymity. And let me talk about each of those briefly. So the issue about is Twitter, our Twitter or Facebook or these other social media uh, platforms, Publishers is really important because we have the traditional publishers. uh, Newspapers, the online newspapers, they have certain duties to avoid libeling and slandering other people and for not publishing things that are inappropriate to the point that they have legal consequences. We need to figure that out for Twitter and Facebook because they really If we step back and yes, there are political issues to that and people take different positions, but they are publishers. And so they do have some duty. Is it the same as other publishers? I don't know. But we ought to at least have that discussion to say, what are their responsibilities and duties as being a company that allows that information to go out, just like newspapers and television stations continue to do and have done for a long time. So I think we need to figure that out. What are their responsibilities? And and I think that needs to have a discussion free of political positioning. Uh, The second thing is anonymity. When I write a letter to the editor, an op-ed into one of the newspapers, I have to give my name. And I often have to say the town that I live in. I doubt if we did that on social media, we'd have as many of the comments, particularly the really horrible ones that are out there. I bet we wouldn't have quite as many. And we're hiding between anonymity. Now, I get from a pure legal perspective, being a lawyer, that the First Amendment does not prohibit anonymity. However, these publishers, just like with traditional media, generally require you to say who you are. Uh, and where you live. I don't care so much about the where you live, but certainly who you are, so that when your viewpoint is expressed, you're kind of checking yourself a little bit. Would I want my name signed to this? If I wouldn't, then I better not say that, and certainly I better not put it in social media. So I think we need to have a better discussion about that, and certainly separating those anonymous discussions From and giving them less credibility than those that are out there with you're willing to identify who you are. The last point about that is even in a Twitter, you know, where it's constrained, and I get that people want their information in a very brief, truncated, quick, easy to access way, you need to have a site. If you're making a factual representation, you need to have a citation or something. And you can get that in in Twitter uh, Twitter, or in tweets that you do or in Facebook posts. And I think we need to evaluate the credibility of that information that's put out on social media by does it have support rather than just saying people say, or this is what I believe. Why do we give that credibility over information that is put out there that is well researched and well documented. I don't understand that.
0: It reminds me of my history when I was doing some kind of class in American history, we we're learning about a bit about media. And I guess it wasn't too long ago that there were only a handful of TV channels. There were only a handful of ways in which you could be, I guess, a publisher or a media source. Nowadays, some guy or some woman from somewhere at some time can be a publisher, some acclaimed publisher, or some acclaimed creator, content creator. And that just can't be right in terms of the authenticity and in terms of the credibility. Um, and, that's, and, and as we try to open up doors, we did try to open up doors with different new sites and new ways for people to communicate. But there needs to be, I think, an exit strategy in the sense that we need to Allow as many diverse opinions and as many viewpoints, as long as they're not threatening. I guess as long as they attest to the Brandenburg test—a uh, reference to the Supreme Court decision uh, back in the '60s—that uh, sort of uh, test. Um, but at the same time, we can't—we cannot view every single viewpoint with the same exact amount of credibility. And that—and as you were saying, you have to cite it. I can use a simple analogy in school. I just recently graduated from my master's program and not only is it unacceptable to not cite a source when you're writing an essay but you could be uh, cited for plagiarism or collusion and you could be kicked out of school and unfor- and i kind of wish that that was the case for social media obviously the whoever is would be imposing that would have to be unbiased although you know people have their own biases and all that but i'm just saying that I've tried to look at the discipline of posting on social media a bit like the discipline I use and what students use when they write essays and when they write pieces of written work, you know, citing people's sources, unless it is your own idea, which you came up with. And that I think is, is something to think about. It's not that people need to go into the whole integrity of, you know, citing Chicago style, whatever. It's just it's just the practice of knowing that not every idea is your own, and it's okay to cite the particular sources, as long as you give people the option, as long as you give yourself the credibility to show that, hey, I'm not always right. I'm just citing a source here. Well, I read this. It's up for other people to make their informed decisions. Um, and I, I'm really, really hoping that that comes about. But go ahead, Ed. You want to add on to that?
1: Yeah, I do, because I think that's an important point. And if we think about a, a traditional media source, let's take a newspaper. The newspaper is really clear, most have been, some are not, about separating news from opinion. In fact, they have an editorial page. That's where opinions go. So whenever anybody sees that, they say that's somebody's opinion. They don't have to have a factual support for everything they say. It's just their opinion. But the news part is supposed to adhere to basic journalistic principles. We need to have that with other publishing sources social media or otherwise because that's where we've gotten into problems we mix and take opinion as facts and that's not the way it works there's a difference now yes people should be free to express their opinion but they can't we shouldn't characterize individual opinion as fact and that's where we've gotten in trouble and quite frankly We get in trouble with that with our major national news media, and I'm going to talk about the big three that everybody knows, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. Those three present news, but they don't do a very good job about separating news from opinion, and that has really exacerbated the situation. So if you turn any one of those channels on, you probably could do it this very minute, you would see two types of reporting of news, so-called news, you would have a host that presents his or her opinion as news combined with some news, or you'd have a panel of so-called experts presenting their opinion as news and its biased toward whatever viewpoint of that particular channel. And that's a problem Because we need to get news that is fact based, not people's opinions. And we also need to get varying viewpoints just as we should when we're trying to solve a problem in our communities or a political problem. We need to have diverse opinions, not just one-sided opinions and facts that are opinions. And we need to get away from that. And we need to look at sources that do a better job of presenting facts as facts and separating those from opinions.
0: That reminds me of this part of the news that I I just can't stand, which is, you know I think this is something that you cited in your book as well, which is that idea that usually they would have some kind of panel of experts. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what qualifies nowadays to be some kind of expert or contributor, which is also a word that's often used in media. And what they do is that they have a panel, right? Maybe they'll have three or four who... Obviously, we're not going to say the exact same thing, but generally are going to have a particular bias or a particular um, viewpoint on a particular issue. And then there's usually this one lone person uh, that uh, unfortunately uh, unfortunately has to take the opposite view. And then as they were speaking – like you know, like a pack of wolves on, on on top of a of a prey, they just kind of pile onto this this one uh, dissenting opinion, and it's really not a, not a great way to portray the diverse opinions. They always say like, "Well, you know, we have uh, some panelists, and they here to talk about, but that's not it's not a game in terms of gotcha and whatnot. It's about getting information out there so that people can make their their own decisions. I think people love to feel important, right? This is just a general thing. And I think one of the ways they feel important is if people like those in the media, like those social media perhaps, offer them saying, here's what I've read or here's what I've written or whatever, this is for you to process. And I think people will, will take it in the way they can. But the problem is we are not living in that kind of world right now. It's really unfortunate. And that kind of leads me now to- some of the solutions that we can think about as we move forward. We've been talking about you know a number of these issues, and boy, we could talk all day about this topic. This is really a fascinating topic, Ed, and uh, and I I can't wait to create more content on this, con- this concept of civility, restoring uh, some kind of unity across uh, different lines. But one thing I want to touch upon, as you were saying earlier, which is about this education aspect for civics, and specifically on this. Really crazy idea of you know the microaggressions and political correctness and safe spaces—all this nonsense that goes on in college campuses. I really think we need to to have a much broader movement to push back against this because this really is not helping anybody. And in fact, there have been studies like those from Jonathan Haidt, who wrote uh, books about uh, about the kind of the coddling, if you like, of the American mind and education systems, and how that's really broadening this and increasing and expanding this polarization going on. So, and my question to you is, what are a couple of major initiatives that you can think of that could really help restore civility in our country?
1: Yeah, I think they're not, there's not a flip the switch and it's going to improve overnight. that That is not going to happen. We didn't get to this point in a day and we're not going to get out of it in a day. I think we really just have to almost go back to the basics. And, and that sounds so simple, uh, but I think it's really the way to approach this. And I talk about this in the book. And the first thing is, let's start our discussions, particularly our political discussions, not with this is the result I want, or this is what my party wants. Uh, but with what is the issue we're trying to solve and what are the what is the common purpose that we have with this? Because I think with so many things, there are. And the example I cite in the book, and I think it's a particularly compelling one, is the example of Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis solving the issue or attempting to solve the issue of racism in the South. And just for background of your listeners, Ann Atwater was a a Black activist around the issue of racial integration of the schools and busing. And C.P. Ellis was the exact opposite, a member, in fact, I think a leader of the Ku Klux Klan. And they butted heads and kept yelling at each other at their positions. And what was amazing is when they started To focus not on that, but to focus on what were the common things they were looking for for their children. You know, a good education, not having to travel really far to go to a school, uh, being in a safe environment. all those different things, they realize, wow, we have a lot in common. And starting from that basis, they were able not only in the one issue that, you know, I think a lot of people would know them for, solve that issue, but over the remaining part of their lifetime, work together to solve other issues like that. That's how that can work. And it's just as simple as having a discussion with someone and Figuring out what are the common things you want, and I think it's coupled with one other thing, and there are many other things that I talk about in the book uh, that would help with this, but it's also being curious. If somebody has an opposite position, rather than launch into them, rather than ascribe to them all this business of evil for having that position – be curious. Ask them, why do you feel that way or why is that position? That's how you can get underneath that, just through that simple technique to what really is going on with them. And then from that, you can have a meaningful discussion to find out what the real issue is and some common goals. And then from that point, non-emotionally, have a discussion to find a set of solutions, a range of solutions that can be discussed in a civil manner and that can lead to real change. Maybe it won't solve everything on that issue, but it can make a huge difference to start making those steps that can make a difference on that particular issue.
0: And what I really like about what you said was that It is a lot about process, isn't it? It's not about like, okay, my end goal is to have policy X. I mean, obviously, yes, we should be working towards policy-oriented goals, but the problem with just having that mindset is that we don't think about the consequences of how we get there because one of the instances that – one of the consequences of what's happening right now is that everyone is just throwing it all in just for particular Policy outcomes or particular ideologies that come about. The problem is that when you set bad precedent, when you set bad example, you get people in the future who think that you are setting a good example, and that's going to be very detrimental. And I think one of the things I I really like about your book is that you talk about how we really need to expect more. We need to. We cannot let um, people get away with uh, everything from threatening Twitter messages uh, to insulting people straight away including attacking other people's family which I just cannot stand at all I really I, I'm going to call out people uh, for sure on people who go after you know kids and after family it was just really really disgusting a, a recent example I can think of is um, recently with the confirmation hearings and whatever side people take uh, it's it's totally fine but um, and there was there was one example where I, I heard that there's this Boston University professor who who called judge barrett a white colonizer because she had black children she had a couple she adopted a couple of kids from haiti i mean that's just uncalled for that really is unacceptable it's just terrible it really it was terrible and and i just can't begin to imagine how judge barrett feels how anyone in her position would feel and certainly the kids i mean kids should not be exposed to that um and i just want i just want to add that real quick to what you were saying about you know the process, about understanding that this is much much more than just a policy outcome. This is about how we run our country. This is about the democratic process. And I think if people were to f- read more and find out more about what that process is, using some history, maybe using some uh, some examples, some modern examples of knowing what people did to generate influence, positive influence in our society. That can, that can make a really big difference. And I want to add on to your example was about those two, uh, the KUK member and the civil rights activists. I, mean, I can't imagine that that kind of alliance in this day and age when people have very, very staunch political differences but are yet are able to find that common ground. That That gives me hope. That gives us hope. Um, and, and I think about people like Senator Daniel Webster, who was a staunch abolitionist, but he tried everything he could to work with pro-slavery people. I mean, think about that. Think about how difficult it must be when people seem like they're on such opposite ends of an issue. And yet you have someone like Senator Webster, whose uh, words, by the way, are on uh, right above uh, the Speaker's chair in the House of Representatives. Um, and when you think about these kinds of people, you just can't imagine, just feel like, I can, maybe I can do better than what I'm doing right now. You know, that kind of aspiration. I, I always, often think that in the Constitution, you know, we say we the people in order to create a more perfect union. I think of that not just as a preamble, but as an aspirational a- aspect of this country. It's not we the people in order to create a more good enough country. It's more and more perfect. We are aiming for something much higher and therefore we should expect more, but also do more as a people. And I think that's exactly what, you're doing, Ed, and I think that's what a, a number of people are doing. But we need to really grow this movement, grow this movement of people setting aside these differences, finding that new common ground. And I want to ask another question and something that you brought up uh, before our recording of this episode. Uh, and one of the things I always do on my podcast is I always go back to the six principles that I've outlined, uh, of Washington's principles, principles that I f- find would be very helpful for us to understand each of these issues. Those principles are civility, education, patriotism, faith, fiscal responsibility, and national unity. And you touched upon a term that I think is really well made, which is civic honor. Tell us about what that is and how that ties in with Washington's principles.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, So civic honor, and I'm working on an article about that, is really the concept of how do we act honorably as citizens, as leaders of our country, in a way that is consistent with our constitutional responsibilities, particularly those as a citizen. And it means a lot. It actually means that we do what is generally viewed as honorable. And I think we all know what this is, but sometimes we justify behavior that's inconsistent with that. So civic honor would be, if I hear, going back to something you just raised, if I hear someone else from my political party or aligned with my beliefs, take a personal attack on someone else that's inappropriate. Then I have the duty to be an honorable person to call them out and say that doesn't, that's not appropriate. We shouldn't do that. I think that's part of civic honor. Part of civic honor is getting the facts so that when you speak, you're speaking truthfully, that you're speaking respectfully. It's all those things that each of us would define. It's not a religious concept. So I want to push that off to the side. Um, it's neither pro religion or anti religion. It's just Basic human decency. What are those things that we can do to be honorable in our lives and in our discourse, in our lives as citizens and in our political discourse? And that's really where we need to be. And we look now and we see so many times when that doesn't happen. And we just, to me, it's very, very disappointing. But I think it's an easy fix. I think it's an easy fix by just having a code of honor. About who we are as citizens and who we are as a nation, and saying, you know, even if it doesn't get me to the political objective that I have, at least I'm going to act with honor and do that in a way that that is, um, you know, that I can be proud of, that my children can be proud of if I have children, um, that we can be proud of as a nation, and I think we're so far away from that and we're to this extreme point that any means justifies the end and it needs to be flipped around the means and the process by which we conduct ourselves as citizens and as humans is really important and we need to get back to that.
0: I think what you said was really really important that that aspect of decency you know bring back those values of Morality. Here's the thing. I know a number of great people, and of course they have political differences. That's okay. That's completely okay. But I really want to see more of this decency come out, and it really it's going to be a very tough challenge. I've said to my friends, I've told people about my aspirations, but really it's not just about me. It's about us. It's about you know the United States, and often get asked like. Why should the United States pursue this very difficult um, direction of trying to heal? Because uh, it's, it's a really insur- uh, seemly, seemingly insurmountable challenge. But I, I think about a saying, I can't remember where it's from, but it still rings in my, in my heart. It's that oftentimes in life, we are given the choice between doing what is easy and doing what is right. And I think that that is really very much at the center of this. Th- these are not easy things. It's easy to you know, to b- brag on social media that, oh, my viewpoint is better than everyone else's. It's easy to uh, perhaps participate in demonstrations where you basically are not even listening to anybody else except uh, people whom you're marching with or people who are shouting with you. It's easy to do that, but that's not going to be change. And Anyone who knows anything about major change, whether it's the civil rights movement or whether it's um, a change in the American Revolution, any of those kinds of changes didn't come easy. So why should we expect that anything that comes to our lives is any different in that respect? I I really believe that we need to really look deep into what we are uh, trying to do, holding ourselves accountable, which is difficult and it's and it's a working process. I don't want to say like you know everyone has and it has now as a platform like if anyone had a podcast about George Washington then automatically he's kind of graduated from that. And that's not the case. We are always learning. And I am really I'm really thankful that people like you and write books like we the people give talks and write op-eds and things like that to boost this discussion because we really need that. And I certainly can say that my generation and future generations will need that. We will need that throughout uh, these, not just these difficult times, but in future times when we might look back and say, those were difficult times, but maybe we are encountering different challenges or even bigger challenges that we could have imagined. And so I think having this toolkit, I think, is really uh, something. Ed, uh, did you want to uh, add on to that and uh, add on to anything uh, on our discussion today that you believe are central to our topic?
1: Yeah, I'd like to add three things if I could, Sherman. So on the last topic that we discussed, I want to add some hope to that, which I do think, yes, doing what's right is not always easy. But I think the more of us that do what is right and hold each other accountable for doing that, the easier that will get. And I, and I want to give an example of that, which I do use in the book, is the example of John McCain when he was asked that question by a, a an American who lived in Minnesota, I believe. And it was, she started out her question, it was at a town hall, basically saying that President Obama was uh, a Muslim and some other things that were inappropriate. And John McCain could have just let that go, but he didn't. He said, ma'am, and he said it very respectfully. I, My opponent in this race, President Obama, is not that. And I want to point that out. He's a fellow American that just happens to have viewpoints that are different than mine. And I think that's a very compelling example for us that we can all use. So I just want to emphasize that. The last thing I want to emphasize, given the timing of this podcast, is One of our most important duties as a citizen is to vote, even if there are challenges to our ability to do so. Because it's very important in this election and in every election that we exercise our duty and our responsibility as citizens to vote for our elected officials. And particularly in this situation dealing with COVID-19, we have to figure out a way to do that and also stay safe.
0: Exactly. Voting really is where it counts. If you don't vote, you don't count. Very simple message. And I think about the people who have made the ultimate sacrifice for us to have the right to vote in a democratic process. Now, Ed, I want to ask one final question, which is, do you have a favorite founding father? If so, tell us and why? And if not, that's completely fine too. Tell us why.
1: Hmm. That's a very good question. I don't think I have a favorite founding father, and let me explain why. I think the founding of the country was not about one individual person, but was about a collection of people that came together with a common goal and implemented that goal, blending very disparate ways at times that they believed was the right way, the position that should be taken to achieve that. I think with most things like the found something as important as the founding of our country, that it's that diversity of viewpoints, and it could have been more diverse um, and if it included other groups that weren't as visible in the discussion or weren't part of the discussion but i think in anything it demonstrates that we need to include a diversity of opinion and that's the way we achieve real lasting result that will all serve that will serve the common good of all of us
0: in a previous episode i mentioned about how the founders really are teachers and each teacher or professor if you want to choose that term, has different areas of expertise, and not one teacher is going to be able to tell the entire truth. Not every teacher is going to be telling you exactly how everything should be viewed. I think it is really important to have this diverse group of people for different opinions. I think particular founding fathers, I think, were perhaps better leaders. I think Washington himself was able to command people who had different views, even as tenacious as they were, if you think of Alexander Hamilton versus Thomas Jefferson as an example. But I think it's really quite an extraordinary set of circumstances for our country to be able to learn from these founders. And we are consistently learning from them, reading back, looking at what they did And reflecting that and applying those principles, applying those values, and seeing how things come about and hopefully come up with better solutions than we did ever before. So, Ed, that will conclude our episode today. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think we covered so much ground, and there's going to be a lot to build on. And I cannot wait to see what comes next on Friends and Fellow Citizens. And I want to congratulate you for coming onto the show and for sharing all of your experiences and what you have learned to our audience. We really appreciate it. Do remind us how we can follow you and where we can buy your book.
1: Thank you very much, Sherman. And just to if uh your listeners would like to obtain a copy of the book, it's available on Amazon and other uh, national media sources and maybe in some local independent bookstores as well. And if they'd like more information about the book or about me, my website is hedwardwynn, all run together. And uh, again, thank you very much for having me on your show. And uh, th- uh, thank you again.
0: And ladies and gentlemen, that will wrap up our episode today. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. I hope that we have made some progress in our journey to apply Washington's principles and values in today's America and across the world. Again, make sure you subscribe and share with your friends and family so that you don't miss every episode every Monday. Enjoy the rest of your day and the rest of your week, and I'll see you next time. Take care and so long.